Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Helping Hands of Our Community, Addressing the Social Determinants of Health podcast, where we highlight the incredible work of individuals, agencies, and organizations who are committed to creating healthy and thriving communities through their work. Thank you for taking time supporting us today by tuning in, listening, and learning. I am your host, Roger Saclupe, and beside me today in person is the amazing Dr. Drew Reynolds, fresh off the car from Atlanta. I'm so glad you're here, man. Yeah, it's good to be here, here in the flesh, and excited to uh, be here for a great conversation. We also have a third host today. Today, we have Dr. Carrie Revens, who is here joining us, utilizing her skills on air, and perhaps she can explore her own podcast in the future. So, Carrie, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. But our guest, the focus of today is someone who I consider a a friend, a colleague, uh, someone who is doing work that really I feel like people aren't truly aware of. And that's why I asked her to come. I asked her to come here because people need to know what she's doing and why she's doing it. So today we have Shauna Pagano. She is here with us from Pat's Place Child Advocacy Center. We also had previous guests from Pat's Place, but each department at Pat's Place sort of works on different, uh, addressing different social determinants of health. And I feel like we need to spotlight the work that Shauna's doing in the community. So, uh, Drew, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about Shauna here? Absolutely. So, Shauna is a native Charlottean and cares deeply about human trafficking survivors in her home state and globally. Shauna is the Human Trafficking Program Coordinator for Pat's Place Child Advocacy Center. In this role, Shauna is responsible for coordinating the anti-trafficking response for youth in Mecklenburg County. Prior to her current role, Shauna worked as a victim advocate serving survivors of sex trafficking, sexual assault, and childhood sexual abuse. Shauna has volunteered with anti-trafficking organizations in Thailand, Bulgaria, and Kenya. Shauna received her Master's of Social Work from UNC Charlotte, and she also serves as the co-chair of the Charlotte Metropolitan Human Trafficking Task Force. Welcome, Shauna. Thank you. Thanks for having me. One more tidbit about Shauna. So she is not only a colleague, but Shauna is somebody that I had the honor and privilege of teaching in our School of Social Work. She graduated from our program, as Drew mentioned. And, you know, the one thing I I really absolutely enjoyed about teaching Shauna is that she was very curious. She's always curious. She's always asking questions. She was always challenging in a good way. You know, I I think it's important for us as helping professionals to challenge. And I think that sometimes we look at challenging as something negative. And Shauna was always looking at how to challenge sort of the status quo, like, why are we doing this? What are we doing? And I really appreciated that about her. So it's really, for me, it's again, an honor and privilege that she's sitting here in front of us and going to tell us about her work. So Shauna, segueing into this question that I'm going to ask, we would love to know about you. Like, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Shauna? So like you heard in the bio, I am a native of Charlotte, one of the rare unicorns. I have a couple of pets, a younger brother. My mom and dad still live in the area. We're a very, very close-knit family, probably enmeshed to use a social social work term. We think it's funny, though. Um, And I am um, really looking forward to the podcast as well as the return of summer <laughs> because I enjoy um, spending time outside at the pool on the patio. So well, you can yeah. enjoy outside in the snow as well. So that is not fun. <laughs> I do and not we have find to that have fun. snow in order for that to happen, right? Well, <laughs> I am hoping for at least the prediction of snow because then you know I will get a day off work. <laughs> yeah. You know. So it sounds like family is important and key to you. Um, you enjoy hanging out going outside summertime, and you have pets. I do Uh, have pets. Let me guess. Do you have cats? Roger, why do you ask if I have cats? Because you (laughs) seem to be somebody who might enjoy cats because cats are lovely. 
They are. Um, Roger, don't you have a cat? I, I recently learned. I do. Folks, I have never been a cat person until recently. And I, I would say that I thoroughly enjoy Shadow, my cat. So... I am a bit of a crazy cat lady. It was the running joke in while I was in grad school. It's the running joke at my, almost the running joke everywhere I go. But yes, I do have some fur babies at home. Thanks for sharing that. All right, Shauna, thank you for telling us about yourself. So this next question kind of goes along with that. So I want to be a little bit more specific about your career. So take me back a little in your career and tell us about the experiences that you've had that led you to do the work that you're doing today. So I actually never considered social work as a career. And when I went to college, didn't I mean, obviously, I didn't even really know that social work was a thing. So I got into real estate because it's a family business out of undergrad. And I did residential and commercial real estate work for nine years. And I was just feeling a little restless and knew that I wanted a change. And so I was actually at church one day and we had a guest preacher come in and she told told us about um, how she had been trafficked by her family when she was, I think, around the age of 11 or 12. And she told her story, and it gripped me. And so somehow I knew that trafficking was going to be involved in whatever you know career change I made. I just didn't know how. So I just started doing a lot of research on the subject, going to every training I could find, and taking some trips around the world to learn more about it. Coincidentally, one of those trips ended up being, you know, this is years later, one of those trips ended up being a three-month internship with that woman's organization in Bulgaria. So it was like it all came full circle. And so I left that career, did my three-month internship in Bulgaria, and then started grad school. So I knew coming into grad school what you know, my focus was going to be. Wow, that's really interesting because I feel sometimes people kind of do it the other way. They go into school, not really sure, but then they take a trip or do an internship and then they kind of find that focus, but you did it the other way around. You got to really experience it, hear about it from somebody personally, and then go to another country and experience it and then be able to say, this is exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. It, and it actually, it helped a lot to know that. You know, I'm not saying, I know most people that in my program didn't kind of know what direction they wanted to go. Mm -hmm. It did help me to know what direction I wanted to go because then when I did research and my project and my internships could all be set up to prepare me for, you know, this work. And so I still use some of the research that I did in my MSW program now in my professional career because it all tied together. Shauna, thanks for the information. Sounds like you just had a really rich experience and that internship you mentioned that led you to Thailand and Bulgaria and Kenya. Could you tell us a little bit more about the internships that um, you experienced while you were in, in the MSW program? When I chose my internships, I knew what I wanted to focus on. So the first um, internship was working with victims of all kinds of sexual violence. And then the second internship was actually, it was a very unique experience at the U.S. Attorney's Office. You know, I didn't really know exactly what the U.S. Attorney's Office did at the time, but it was um, very, very valuable learning experience and got to learn a lot about federal investigations and prosecutions and how the law enforcement and prosecutions work for federal crimes, which was really, really fascinating. I think that's really fascinating too that you had that experience while in the context of a social work program. It's not often that students get a chance or other people who are in social work get a chance to work so closely with law enforcement. Can you talk about that experience? What was it like for you to work in that arena and how did that help form you as a social worker in your future career? Career. That internship really, at the time, I didn't know was going to prepare me more than it even did because many crimes or many human trafficking trials actually are federal trials, not state trials. So 
I now have a better picture of what the federal prosecution and that whole process looks like. And I worked in the victim witness unit, which was really interesting, and um, got to see that side of, you know, what happens after law enforcement, you know, charges a case and it's turned over to the prosecutor. And it was just um, a really great learning experience so that when I did go back out as a professional, you know, I understand what a victim is going through because I've been on that victim side of the prosecutions. Um, I actually collaborate with law enforcement a lot even now. One of the unique things I think about working with the Child Advocacy Center is that you have such a tight-knit relationship with law enforcement. Many, many cases do have a law enforcement component because there is a criminal piece to it. And so we are together every single day, you know. Um, they come to our building regularly to do interviews. And so it's just a unique experience that I don't think many people get to have with law enforcement, you know, that a lot of times in our communities, some people don't have a positive outlook at them, but I see them as part of the team. And we follow each other on Instagram and, you know, we go out together and stuff. So it's just a fun relationship that that we get to have. It's like a family. It is. It's like a family. It's one of the few places I think that an agency outside of law enforcement has such a close relationship with people from law enforcement. Again, for our listeners out there, um, Shauna is employed by Pat's Place Child Advocacy Center, but she definitely has her foot in so many different doors. And uh, I do remember when Shauna was looking at employment opportunities and Pat's Place was uh, under consideration because of Project No Rest. Mm -hmm. We would love to hear a little bit more about Project No Rest. Where did it sprout from? Why was it an important project? And then how you became involved with that project? I'll be honest, I became involved because I harassed my boss until she hired me. <laughs> And if she ever listens to this, she'll laugh and that's say that's absolutely true. <laughs> true assertiveness. Um, but Project No Rest was um, a six-year grant-funded program that um, UNC Chapel Hill received the grant funding from, I think, the U.S. Department of Children and Families. And it was a six-year project. And the first kind of four years were a lot of background work, some research. And then they developed a kind of a comprehensive guide about trafficking and what that looked like in North Carolina. And then the second part of that project was a two-year phase where they actually selected different communities in North Carolina to be selected as pilot sites. And each community would implement anti-trafficking efforts, you know, based on that community's needs. So Pat's Place and other agencies in the community actually went in together to apply to be a pilot site. And so they were selected as a pilot site. And it just so happens that at the time I was looking for a job and I submitted a resume to Pat's Place for a different position. And they said, hey, you know, we don't think Think this one's going to be a great fit for you, but just hang tight because we have another one coming down the pipeline. And once she told me about it and I did some research on it, I was like, that's my job. I know that's my job. So, and that's when I started like periodically emailing my current boss and saying, have you hired anyone yet? Have you posted that yet? You have my resume, right? Um, so I feel like I bullied her into it, but it's been a great experience. So when I started the role, a lot of Project No Rest was about data collection. And so we did roll out some data collection methods here in Mecklenburg County to give us a better idea of statistics. Statistics are really hard to come by in the human trafficking world. So Drew and Carrie are our data gurus. Oh, dear. <laughs> All, I mean, common data. I mean, it's in it's in Drew's blood, <laughs> right? So um, do you guys have questions about sort of the data statistics? Oh, yeah. gosh. I'm not going to put you on the spot to, to quote anything, but I'm really curious about um, human trafficking is something that is very much seen and understood in the community as kind of a hidden thing. Right. Right. And that's, that's it's, you know, well, not something. Well, you understand that. A lot of people don't. And, and so it's hard, I think, for people to kind of grasp it. And it's also hard to understand that within the context 
context of social and environmental factors that contribute to trafficking. Mm -hmm. And you know, this podcast is all about the social determinants of health and what are the things that go on in our social world and our environment that contribute to health and well-being. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that in that research that you're doing, you know, not worrying about the specific data points and whatnot, but what did you see as factors going on in the Charlotte community that contribute to that? And, and what are ways as a community that we can collectively respond? So it's fascinating. After we pulled our first round of data, one of the things that we looked at was risk factors. And it was a stark contrast between adults and minors, partly because the information that people collect for adults is different than the information they collect for minors. So that was some of the stark differences. But one of the two greatest correlates we saw were that for adults who has experienced human trafficking, they had also experienced domestic violence and they also had housing instability. So I said, well, you know, when we were looking at affordable housing in Charlotte, not only do we need to look at it for all of the reasons that you should be looking at affordable housing, but now you can add on to that because it also correlates to human trafficking, right? So I just thought that was one of the most interesting pieces of the data. For minors, um, we saw that those who had a history of running away had the highest correlation to becoming victims of human trafficking. And we kind of know that as a society, but to actually see it holds true in Charlotte was really fascinating. And I think that was the highest correlation. But um, we also know just from anecdotally in our data that victims of human human trafficking also have a high percentage of history of childhood sexual abuse. What was unfortunate to me was that we didn't see a lot of labor trafficking or those who were undocumented. And I think part of that was because there's a fear of coming forward and asking for help. And so I wasn't surprised, but it did. It was disheartening to see that maybe that population isn't being served the way that you know we would want it to be. I had one question, and then what you just said sparked a second question. So you may not have the answer for this, but what you were just talking about, about undocumented populations and such, do you have any idea the percentage of human trafficking um, victims that are immigrants here in Charlotte? Do you guys have any data on that? I don't have any data on that. What I saw was from, you know, and keep in mind the numbers that I have are, are you know, limited. They're not, you know, wide reaching. But what I did see was that undocumented folks accounted for somewhere around 13 percent. It was a very, very low percentage of, of the population. I think you could probably get some national statistics, but it's just information that people are not readily willing to share either, you know. And so human trafficking statistics in general are hard to come by. And that adds just another layer of kind of that fear coming forward. Right. Yeah, I can imagine it would be difficult for people to open up and talk about that. And then especially those who are undocumented mm -hmm. are worried about status and things like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. So where do you get the data from? I know it's very hard to get. Where have you gotten it from locally? From locally, Project No Rest had kind of data collection methodology through a REDCap system, like a REDCap project. It was run through there. IRB, all the data had a certificate of confidentiality. And then we invited agencies in the community that wanted to participate in our program. And so I don't share the agencies that wanted to participate and did participate just because I think it adds another layer of anonymity to clients. But we did reach out to those we know regularly intersect with victims of human trafficking. So I'm thinking that if a person was already going to an organization for help or something and they felt safe and they trusted those people, that they may be more willing to come forward with some of that data than they would with an outside researcher or some other group or something like that. Yeah. And client name, social security, any PII was not submitted with it. We did everything we could to make sure that we protected everyone. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. So one thing I'm kind of curious about, too, um, Many of the things that we talk about in this podcast are pretty unique to Charlotte. So how is Charlotte responding to this community? What is, it, what, is the, what is unique about human trafficking situation here in Charlotte? And what should our community members know with respect to what they can do to contribute? 
Well, I would say one of the things I would love the most is for people in Charlotte to become educated about what human trafficking actually looks like. I am still fighting an uphill battle to dismantle the myth that human trafficking is about being snatched off the street. It's like the movie Taken, and that's just not what it looks like. So I think providing education to people about what it looks like and dispelling some of the myths would go a long way in also prevention efforts. You know, for example, I tell moms of girls all the time, I say, you're really, really worried about the guy at Target snatching your daughter and making her a victim of human trafficking, when in all actuality, you probably already have a predator or a trafficker inside of your home, and it's on your child's cell phone in their social media accounts. And that's how they're contacting them and reaching out to them. And so that's where you need to focus your efforts. Um, not that you shouldn't be, you know, aware of your surroundings, but, you know, we really need to start thinking about prevention efforts from a place that is rooted in reality and not myths. Also, the other thing is people forget a lot about labor trafficking. It's one of those things that mm. tends to go by the wayside. You know, sex trafficking gets sensationalized, and that's the one everyone wants to talk about. But we have a lot of victims of labor trafficking. They endure horrible, inhumane conditions that just don't get any of the kind of media attention or the recognition that they need to get. Um, so I think kind of those are the two things that I would love for our community to really become educated about. I'd also love to see us do more in prevention. There's some legislation that requires, if you have a child in seventh through ninth grades in North Carolina, they are required by law to have human trafficking education in their health class. That was passed in 2015 and many places still don't do that. And then North Carolina just passed another law that said all school personnel have to be educated about child sexual abuse and sex trafficking every two years starting this year. So um, I would really like to see us amp up those prevention efforts because we've got to stem the tide. Shauna, last week you were part of a panel here in the School of Social Work and you provided students and all who are interested a lot of great information, not only national statistics, but also local statistics, uh, and particularly to the state of North Carolina. So if you can talk a little bit about things that perhaps we don't think about, like how does the interstate come into play with human and sex trafficking? Okay. Uh, you know, we have yeah. the 77 and 85 corridor here. Um, we have 40 as well. I-40 hits through from North Carolina all the way out west. Uh, but I remember you talking about uh, I-77, I-85, and then I-95. Mm -hmm. We see trafficking concentrated around major interstates, and that's across the country. And interstates provide a means of transportation so you can easily take a victim from one location to another. So that's part of the reason. So let's say you are a trafficker and you're in Atlanta, but there's a big event coming in Charlotte, then you can easily take the interstate up to Charlotte and then you're going to stop in New York because they're doing something there. It's called a circuit and kind of run those major interstates. So that's why we see trafficking concentrated in cities around these major interstates. We also know that sex trafficking happens a lot at truck stops. And so there are efforts to educate truckers and to have truckers call the human trafficking hotline if they notice something that seems off. But because trafficking does happen at truck stops, and truck stops are all along the interstates. That's the other reason that we kind of see that um, uptick in the interstates. It almost makes me feel like as a helping professional, especially as a social worker, how we can be embedded in city planning, for example. Like how intentional are we with city planning when they build roads or highways and interstates? And what kind of precautions are they embedding with those systems in order to um, not only create awareness, but also for preventative work? You know, Roger, I don't know from a city perspective if that is something that they've ever, you know, really looked out loud. At. It's, one of, yeah. it's one of my social workers going to be everywhere. I'm brainstorming here. You know? yeah. That's right. So I think I, I just think it's one of those things that I'm, I'm putting a seat out there for our listeners to kind of think about and marinate on a little bit. Right. 
it might be very obvious, but for some of our listeners may not know exactly, could you just briefly explain what is sex trafficking and what is labor trafficking? Yeah, just, that's a great just question. Just in, you know, very uh, common terms yep. that I can understand easily. But yeah, I just yeah. thought maybe that would be good for us to know. I'm not familiar with labor trafficking. Okay. So even for, for me, that's helpful. So anytime you have labor trafficking, whether it's adult or a child, or if you have an adult in sex trafficking, then that person would be compelled into those labor services or that commercial sex through a person forcing them to do it, tricking them into do it, which is, you know, the legal definition is fraud, or coercing them to engage in those services. When I say commercial sex act, I mean any sexual activity in exchange for anything of value. So it's not necessarily, you know, for money. It can be for shelter, food, et cetera. So force would be what we think of. You know, you tie the person up and you, you know, hide them in the basement. We don't really see as many of those cases. Um, Defrauding would be um, you, let's say, for example, for labor trafficking, you hire a person from Central America to come be your nanny. And then when they get here, you take their documents away from them and you enslave them in your home. So that would be fraud. They thought they were going to come here as a nanny and then they ended up being forced to do these labor services. And then coercion is what we see most of the time. And a lot of times it's psychological coercion, it's threats of harm, it's threats of harm against that person or their family members. And so you have to have one of those three elements, either they're forced, tricked, or coerced into those labor services or into the commercial sex acts. We know with our undocumented folks, when they, they may come here with, let's say, a temporary work visa, and then an employer will take their documentation from them and then force them to continue working. So that way, let's say on in a restaurant, construction, agriculture, something like that. The exception to all of this is any minor that is engaged in commercial sex. And so anyone under the age of 18, um, we consider that person a victim. You do not need Need to prove those three elements in that case because the way our laws are written, anyone under the 18 cannot consent to engage in commercial sex. Thank you. That is very, very helpful. One more question for mm-hmm. me kind of goes back to the data part. Are there particular groups of people who are at an increased risk or that we see higher rates of sex trafficking or labor trafficking, either age groups or race, ethnicity backgrounds? Are there certain groups that are somewhat um, targeted almost or just at an increased risk for these things? So a lot of what you talk about is social determinants, and a lot of those same social determinants are the same vulnerabilities that people prey on. So what a trafficker is looking for is a vulnerable person, and it can come in any shape or form. But we do see some higher percentages in certain populations. So um, when it comes to labor trafficking, I don't know if this holds true nationally, but at least what I have seen is that for labor trafficking, we tend to have a higher percentage of undocumented folks. For sex trafficking, at least what I saw in our data, um, for minors, for anyone under 18, it was very, very disproportionate African-American females. Um, But I have a service provider who works in another county, and she said they were disproportionately Caucasian in her county. So it could vary county by county. You know, in Mecklenburg, I saw, that's what I saw was disproportionate um, African-American females. A lot of times people ask me about increases in those who identify as LGBTQ being victimized. We do see higher rates, but it has nothing to do with, you know, a person identifying as LGBTQ. It's because research has shown us those who identify as LGBTQ may not have the support from their family and maybe they're kicked out of their house. Maybe they've run away because of people in their life who disagree with them. And, And we see those 
those um, running away behaviors or not having the social support that they really need and deserve are actually the vulnerabilities that people prey on because they're, you know, away from their home or let's say they're um, looking for a community to belong in. So it just creates an increased vulnerability. Thanks again for that information. Uh, hopefully that's something that our listeners can just really, uh, again, sit and marinate on because it's just, it's fruitful for us to know what is going on in our community. Uh, a lot of the times we don't know what's going on unless we're impacted by it. And again, kind of the purpose of our podcast is to highlight the work that folks like Shauna, what they're involved in and, and why it's important for us to know. Uh, kind of going back to statistics and data, um, I'm interested if you could just touch on like where does North Carolina rank nationally and then where does Charlotte rank nationally as well? Yeah, thanks, Roger. That's a great question that I get a lot. So there is a nonprofit called the Polaris Project, which runs the National Human Trafficking Hotline. And that is a tip line where people across the country and actually beyond can call in suspected tips for human trafficking. And then those tips are dispatched to the local law enforcement in that area. So they collect the volume of calls per state and rank it each year. Traditionally and historically, North Carolina always falls right around number 10 in the country, meaning we receive the 10th most volume of calls across the country. And that is not per capita, that's just volume. That's surprising to a lot of people. In addition to that, um, Charlotte always has the highest concentration of trafficking within North Carolina. So we see hotbeds in big cities, like Atlanta has a lot, but Charlotte is not immune from trafficking by any means. Thank you so much. This kind of discussion helps, I think, so many of our listeners who are working in areas that may not be directly related to human trafficking help to understand a little bit of the context and can have opportunities to learn more so that they can also engage in that community and preventative work in their own areas of practice. So some of our listeners also are probably interested in um, how you've made this work a part of your own career and your mission. You talked a little bit about kind of how that came about as your student and internship and leading into your work now. But maybe what advice would you give to uh, helping professionals now who are interested in working with supporting survivors of human and sex trafficking and labor trafficking? Um, I would say definitely I encourage you. <laughs> Absolutely. We need um, people who are really dedicated to this work. I would say you could start volunteering now with an anti-trafficking organization, and I would say start there. We have some throughout Charlotte that would love to have you help and go ahead and start getting your feet wet to decide if this is something you really are interested in. I always encourage anyone who is going into you know this kind of work to also do direct client work first. What I do is all macro, and a lot of times my macro work is rooted in the experience I had with clients early in my career. And so even if you're interested in macro, and, and you know, a lot of people, you know, that that may not be um, <laughs> their thing, but if it is, I still encourage you to work with clients first and just know that th this population has a lot of needs. So this is just not a client that, you know, you check the box and move on. Like the history of trauma is very extensive and you're not just looking at a, a single event of trauma. You're looking at a lifetime of trauma. Thank you so much. So you've given us so much wonderful information today, and I think very valuable information that our listeners can take and become more educated about this and more aware. So I'm going to ask you a question that is kind of nothing to do with any of the things that you do for work, just so we can know a little something else about you. So um, other than work, just tell us something that you really enjoy doing that has nothing to do with work or nothing to do with social work or... Okay. That, that I was going to say traveling, sort of but my last like few trips have been to volunteer um, with different trafficking organizations. And so I'm like, eh, it, but I do like to travel. And the end of last year, I did a lot of travel. Took a, I actually took one vacation that had nothing, no volunteer work attached to it. I don't mind just hopping a plane and figuring it out when I get there. Where did you go? Where was that last trip? The last that trip was, was me and my mom went to Portugal. 
Where? Which part? We actually went to um, the Azores Islands. Oh, wow. And how did you like it? Um, yeah, we liked it a lot. Um, one day we just rented a car and, you know, drove the island and we had a great time. Did you learn any Portuguese? You know, I did not learn any Portuguese. I know a li- I did learn a little bit of Swahili when I was in Kenya last year, but I did not pick up any Portuguese. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Shauna. So for people who would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way they can do that? The best way to do it is just call Pat's place and just ask for me and they'll send you my way. Shauna, we're, we're just so happy that you came today, that you shared this information, not only with us, but with our listeners. I'd be remiss if I didn't give some shout outs here because I know that you work with an incredible group of individuals. Pat's Place is an organization that I've been connected with for many years. I've worked with them on several cases. And I just want to give a couple of shout outs to some folks from Pat's Place. Uh, Andrew Oliver, um, the CEO. I know you had mentioned your your supervisor, your, your current boss, uh, Ann Glasser. Mm-hmm. Um, she's she's an amazing individual. Uh, Marquia Hurst, another just incredible person. Uh, Genesee Ancialo, you know, uh, Cassandra uh, Rondo Asensio. She is uh, somebody who I've collaborated with before. Definitely um, Alejandra Davis. She is also awesome. And uh, and last but not least for me, it's uh, Darcy Powell. She and I worked together a long time ago at Thompson Channel Family Focus. And there are every Everybody at Pat's Place is just beautiful. They're just great. But just wanted to say a shout out to some of those folks because I've, I've had a connection with them um, in the past. So, so Shauna, as we head towards the end of our episode, is there anything that you can let our listeners know about where they can obtain reliable information regarding human and sex trafficking? I would start with Polaris. Um, go to their website, the nonprofit I was talking about earlier. Um, I would start there. They have a, a lot of great numbers, stats, and research that I think are a great, great start. And also, feel free to reach out to me because me and my colleagues really enjoy doing community education and awareness. Well, Shauna, thank you so much for your time. We're so grateful for having you here today. To access this episode and information about our wonderful guests, uh, navigate to thehelpinghandspodcast.com. And I would love to thank Dr. Carrie Revens again for joining us today. And it's always awesome to see you. Drew, thank you so much for being here live in person. For our listeners, you're aware that Drew calls in from Atlanta and sometimes he comes here and sprinkles me with his happiness. So I appreciate him being here. Shauna, thank you so much for what you do. And thanks to our listeners for their curiosity and willingness to learn something new. Until next time, remember, strong always, always strong.